I want to begin tonight by sharing with you something kind of personal. I have an aunt who lives in Squim, Washington. Squim is kind of across the salt water, if you will, from Seattle. Squim is an Indian word that means warm. And evidently the Indians thought this was a warm part of, of the state of Washington. But my aunt and uncle lived there, and years ago, my aunt decided to set out on a personal venture where she wanted to research and discover and find out where the Schrocks came from, my last name. So they went all over the country. They retired, and they went all over the country going to libraries and courthouses and phone books and just finding out where the Schrocks came from. And so one year at Christmas time, we all received in the immediate family a package in the mail with a syllabus about this thick, I still have it, of our family tree and explanation. Now, I'm sure your family tree is the same way, but evidently, I am related to a number of famous people. Somehow, someway, through marriage, I'm related to George Washington, our first president. We got the same hairstyle. Um, somehow, someway, I'm related to Francis Scott Key, the composer of our national anthem. He was a godly man. Somehow, someway, and this always helps with my love offering down south, I'm related to Robert E. Lee, that famous general for the south. I'm related to him. But there's a fourth gentleman I'm related to that before I tell you his name, I want to tell you why he's famous. And maybe you can guess it. And if you do, keep it to yourself for a while, okay? But this fourth gentleman, when he was living in America, was known as the March King. He was a prolific composer and the most revered band director America's ever produced. Now, folks, please understand that when I say band, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when my relative lived, Bands and orchestras were to American society what rock and roll is now. It's a much more wholesome musical environment in our country than, than we have now. And generally speaking, people, Americans, knew more about music back then than we do now. Now we know a whole lot about entertainers, but a whole, very little about what makes music. That was the opposite in the 1800s. Well, my distant relative was the most revered band director America's ever produced. He traveled all over the world. He's buried at Arlington Cemetery. He was so revered that the President of the United States came to him and said, would you please be the conductor of my president's own Marine band, most prestigious band in America. The way you get into that band, you don't have to be a Marine to get in. You get in by audition only. Whenever there's an opening, there are anywhere from three to 500 applicants. It's a position that if you make it, you keep it as long as you want. You're given a condominium in D.C., a handsome salary, and you travel often with the president of the United States. It's a very prestigious band. My distant relative was the conductor of that band for 11 years. My distant relative also lived in New York City and is a workout buddy with Babe Ruth. Very well-known man. Everybody knew him. And he was often a guest conductor with bands all over our country. His name was John Philip Sousa. To this day, the most popular orchestra in America called the Boston Pops will end their concerts with an encore, Stars and Stripes Forever, written by my relative. The reason I'm telling you this tonight, people, is because there was an, a, an occasion where John Philip Sousa was invited to be a guest conductor somewhere here in the Midwest. He conducted that concert, and after the concert was over, as people were milling around, a college-age young person came to him with a question. And that's good. That's the way you learn. You ask questions. It was a good question. This young person came to Mr. Sousa and said, Mr. Sousa, I am majoring in music. I want to be a band director. What, in your estimation, Mr. Sousa, is the most important instrument in the band? Now, folks, if you were to ask me that question, you already know the answer. 
But my answer was not my relative's answer. Here's what he said, and this is kind of famous in the music world. He said, son, that's easy. The most important instrument in the band is the bass drum. Now, folks, I don't know how that hits you, but I can tell you from experience, having spent thousands of hours in orchestra and band rehearsals, it seems like we always put the kid with the least talent on the bass drum. All they do for the entire rehearsal or concert is boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. I have no talent. Boom, boom, boom. That's all they do. It's all they do. So this college-age young person gave Mr. Sousa a look, and this is very famous. He gave Mr. Sousa a look like, really? And Mr. Sousa went on and said this. He said, son, if I've got my bass drummer at the end of my baton, I know I'll have the rest of the group. Folks, that is so true. That low pulsating beat, often when played well, you, the audience, don't even hear it. But it acts like a a pulse to the band. And if that bass drummer decides to speed the tempo up or slow it down, that group will follow that bass drum long before they follow the conductor. I have told that story, people, all over America. On two different occasions, I had a rather elderly man come to me and say, Brother Mike, I used to study with one of John Philip Sousa's drummers. One of those old men told me that his teacher told him one time that when he was playing the drum for John Philip Sousa, he would purposely, during rehearsal, speed the tempo up or slow it down just to see Mr. Sousa get mad. (laughs) He was a stickler on tempo, stickler on keeping it solid, keeping it constant, keeping it regular. Ladies and gentlemen, I share that story with you tonight because that's going to be our message. We're going to look together at your bass drum. Every one of you have it. Every one of you are the player. You are the only player of your bass drum. But it's the instrument in your life by which you decide everything, what you eat, what you watch, what you wear, what you read, how you think. It's all based on the way that you play your bass drum. And you've got it. Can I show it to you tonight? Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you'll be so kind this evening. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at your bass drum. But folks, you be patient with me because it's going to take us a few minutes to really get there and really, really dissect that. But I want you to see the context, and then, and then you'll, see, you'll see what I mean. Verse, verse number 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, and 2 Peter is so fun to study. It's the last will and testament of a man who knows he's about to die a martyr's death, and we'll talk about that tomorrow night. But what a fascinating book. It's a valedictorian address to a people that he adores, and that being the church. And watch this, if you would, please, in verse number five. In fact, do something for me, would you, congregation? If you've got a King James Bible, would you, when I count to three, give me the first three words of verse number five, okay? They're very important. Are you ready? One, two, three. Let me tell you what's happening. If we look up this way. I'm going to stand right here in the middle of your auditorium. This is a very key spot in this room. No doubt there have been many a bride who've stood here over the years. No doubt there have been many a coffin that have been placed right here. It's kind of a key spot. I would like where I'm standing right now to represent and beside this. I'm standing on and beside this. What you need to understand is and beside this, folks, is what we call a literary bridge. It's a tool that both Paul and Peter adore in their writings. It's a literary bridge, and what he's doing by this bridge, Peter, to us, is he's connecting material that he has just written with material he's about to write. He's connecting these two islands. You could say it this way. Peter's saying, because of that, this. 
this will be a result of that. Are you with me? Well, let's step back here and just see what Peter has just done in verses 1 through 4 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me tell you what he's done. You don't need to look at it. We don't have time. But let me tell you what he's done. It's one sentence. Four verses long, one sentence. And in that one sentence, basically what he has said is, Wow, isn't the word of God and isn't salvation incredible? Woohoo! We win. That's what he's saying. And he talks about the fact that you've got five gifts, five gifts, my friend, that you got the moment you got saved. And he doesn't even touch eternal life. He doesn't touch heaven. That's the icing on the cake. I'm talking right now. If you're saved, you are enjoying these five gifts. And there's no such thing in Christianity as retardation. You've all got these five gifts. You've got, you're just as gifted as your pastor, every one of you. And what are those gifts? Well, he talks about the gift of grace. He talks about the gift of peace. He talks about the gift of knowledge. He talks about the gift of life and godliness. He talks about the gift of a divine, godlike nature. You got all five of those gifts, young people and adults and retirees. You got all five of those gifts the moment you got saved. You are gifted. He's going to say that three times in that one little sentence. You are gifted, saint. You're gifted. In fact, repeat after me. I am gifted. I am gifted. One more time. Now, like you had a Purdue football game. All right, good. Now, don't forget that, okay? You are gifted. Did you, did you hear me? Folks, you are gifted if you're saved. So Peter's now saying, because, and beside this, because you are gifted, may the following be true. Well, now, let's read the next three words. They're kind of warming you up. Another kind of little preposition here. He says, and beside this, giving all diligence. Giving all diligence. Let me tell you what that means. It is God's will, Christian, for every one of you, it's a command for every one of you to give this diligence. What is he talking about? Let me demonstrate. Up here on your platform is a chair. Pastor's been sitting in it. I'm going to borrow it here. And I want you to just pretend something with me tonight. Would you please, friends? I'll put it over here so everybody can see. Let's just pretend that you guys like me. I said pretend. You guys like me. And not only do you give me a, a love offering, an honorarium, you also give me a ticket and airfare to go see my favorite football team play football. I have never seen them in person. I will adore you if you do this. Group hug, group hug, group hug. My favorite team, I know you're going to think less of me, but I don't care. My favorite team, I came by it naturally because I grew up there. I absolutely adore the Seattle Seahawks. Yes, 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 yes. Hush up. I like to see how So let's just pretend that you guys buy me a football ticket to see the Seahawks play football and airfare. <laughs> I have nothing but fuzzy thoughts towards you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now let me just give you, in case you decide to do this, let me just make sure you know something. I will not go to a football game on the Lord's Day, but I sure would on Saturday or Monday night. Hint, hint, hint. Okay, so anyway, you buy me a ticket, and there it is, folks. There it is, the ticket that you bought me because you like me. I fly to that destination, maybe it's Seattle itself, I, and I get there, and everybody who goes to a football game always gets there nice and early. Would that we did that as Christians in church, right? But anyway, they always get there nice and early, and so I get there nice and early to the game, and here's the seat that you bought me. You paid big bucks for it because it's right at the 50-yard line, right down in front, and I'm right in the middle of a bunch, a bunch of morons called Seattle Seahawks fans. And I'm sitting here, and the teams come out, and they get it on. 
and they, 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 they're playing football, and, and then Seattle does something they've done a lot of in recent years. They score a touchdown. Could I show you what I would not be like? My team marches down the field, and they score a touchdown. I would not be like this. Oh, this is so boring. Like some of you in church. I so wouldn't be like that. Could I show you what I would be like? May I suggest if you wear hearing aids, turn them down. But I would be on my feet and I would be saying things like, Yes! Yes! Go, boy! You get them! Kill them! Kill them! In Christian love, kill them! We want more! Get them! Get them! And I would be giving high fives to people around me I've never met before in my life. Question. Would I be weird? I'm not asking, am I weird? In that environment, would I be weird? No. I'm just a fan. Short for? Fanatic. That is exactly, people, what diligence means. You're a fan of. You're all over this. You so want it. It doesn't mean you come to church all psycho. But way down in your heart you are. Yeah, yeah. The Bible? Bring it, preacher. Yeah. I want this. This is your heart. That people, that's what the word diligence means. It means to have enthusiasm for. I don't know where we ever got the idea that it's now time to come to church and I need to sit here and act like I'm half dead, you know? Oh. You, you, folks, do you let this get a hold of your heart? And your pastor will be up there preaching and, and he comes out with a good one. And, and I, I have a feeling he does that every now and then because I know what book he's preaching from and I know where he got his education. I think he probably comes out with a good one every now and then. And you're sitting there, and you're paying attention, and you're glad you're here, and this may happen. Amen. Well, I can't believe that slipped. That is so not Indiana. That is so not American. No, no, no. Yeah, excuse me. It's diligent. It's enthusiasm. And the Bible says you're to give it. Now, it doesn't mean you have to say amen. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is it's talking about your heart attitude, lady. Your heart attitude, sir. You're all over this like a fan. Bring it. Peter says, give this all diligence. What am I supposed to give diligence to, folks? Let's read the next four words, could we? Watch this. He says it in verse 5. And beside this, literary rage, because you are gifted. Don't forget that, friends. It's all built on the fact that when you got saved, God gifted you. And so he says, and beside this, giving all enthusiasm, diligence, eagerness, add to your faith. Add to your faith. Peter, what in the world are you talking about? How do you add to your faith? You either have it or you don't. Peter, what do you mean? Does that mean your font in the Lamb's book of life is getting bigger and bigger? How in the world do I add to my faith? I'm so glad you asked. Let me show you what it means. In order to show you this, I need some help. I've got a list here of four men that I need to have come up here and help me to, uh, to, to, to describe this. So if, if you would just come up here, men, and join me. Just stand, just stand behind the pulpit, okay? There are four of you. Uh, Kim Holt. Kim, could you come help me, please? Come, come up here, would you? Where's Kim? Th- uh, hi, Kim. Come up here. Thank you for volunteering. Um, stand right behind, the, right behind the pulpit, Kim. Thank you. Um, Scott Hatchell. Scott, where's Scott? Hi, Scott. Oh, yeah, I know Scott. Scott's helping me on that computer. Um, all right, and then Carl Slade. Where's Carl? Carl, could you help me, please, Carl? 
I see somebody moving over here. Hi, Carl. Thank you. I appreciate it, Carl. And then Bob Benninger. Where, where's Bob Berniger? Bob. Is Bob here? Hey, Bob. Come on up here. All right. So if you guys could stand a little closer to the pulpit so we can pick you up with a microphone. Okay. And maybe slide to your right just a little bit so, so Bob has room. Okay. All right. So, folks, what's going to happen? I have these four men up here. They are going to sing for you. They're going to be a men's quartet. <laughs> <laughs> we might need that trumpet. <laughs> Definitely. Now, folks, stay with me, okay? And the, you guys behind me, be quiet. I'm trying to preach. What's going to happen is I'm going to organize these guys. I am, Mike. I'm going to organize them into a men's quartet. They're going to sing for you. There is a title you could call me. You could call me a chorister. You could call me a choir dude. You could even call me a choreographer. All three of those words kind of had the same basic meaning. Now, I'm going to organize these guys into a men's quartet. Now, there's something you need to understand about a men's quartet. I know some of you know this. Most of you do not. Your hymn book, your hymn book is written in a style, Western civilization style, that was mastered by a genius by the name of J.S. Bach. Every music student learns that there are about 21, 22 different part writing rules that when you use them when you're writing music, you can have more than one melody going on at the same time and they sound good together. Bach is this genius who mastered every single hymn in your hymn book, people, has four different melodies going on at the same time. When you hear a good choir, when you hear a good quartet, you're hearing all four of those melodies, and they sound good together because they were written in a style mastered by Bach. Now, what you need to understand is that those four melodies can be more than four. There are, there are moments in Handel's Messiah where you have 16 melodies going on at the same time, and it sounds good together. So... I'm going to assign each one of these guys one of those melodies. I, and, and in order to assign them, I need to hear them sing. So I need to audition them. Will you give me a moment? Yes. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have all of them, including you, let's all sing together a cappella. Let's all sing together Amazing Grace. Do you know Amazing Grace? Has that made it to Lafayette? Yeah, okay. Let's all sing Amazing Grace. I'll lead you a cappella or a cappella, whatever you prefer, okay? But let's all sing, and you sing out so they're comfortable, okay? But I'm going to kind of try to listen especially carefully to them, okay? Are you ready? Are you with me? Did I, am I clear? Nod your head if you're with me. Okay, good. Are you ready? Here we go. Amen. Come on. Thank you, that's all I need. Now let me tell you what I heard. I heard everybody that was singing out, singing a melody called soprano. Now you men were an octave low. One of these guys was two octaves low, but you know, they were, we were all singing a melody called soprano. I'm going to assign Scott to be my soprano. Now all he's going to do... Now, <laughs> All he's going to do, no more outbursts, please, we're going to do Dr. Paycheck, okay? All Scott's going to do is sing what you just did. That's all he's going to do, okay? Of all the four parts, soprano is probably the easiest because it's, you know, it's the most recognizable melody. Now, I'm going to throw a key word at you. I'm going to throw a Bible word at you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to add. Did you catch that? I'm going to add to my soprano an alto. Brother, what was your name again? Jim Holt. Oh, Jim. 
No, Kim, yeah, Kim, yeah. Kim. Another one of the girls. Okay, all right. <laughs> you sure did. Okay. Brother Kim, Brother Kim is going to be my alto. Now, of all the four melodies, the alto is probably the easiest. It probably goes like this in Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. E -e. That's usually the alto line. It's a very simple line, but it is a separate melody. And if I do my job right, the chorister, the choreographer, the choir dude, if I do my job right, even though I've got two distinct melodies, if I do my job right, they're going to sound like one. They're going to sound like one. You with me? Now, I'm going to, Bible word, add to my soprano, to my alto, a tenor. He's going to be my tenor. Now, let me tell you about tenors in the choir. Oh, and by the way, when I said alto with Brother Kim, you heard some laughter. And one of the reasons for that is because people that know music know that alto is usually sung by women in the choir who smoked before they were saved. And so, and so they're, 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 their, voices, their voices are a little deeper. Okay, so, so I, I, I have a tenor. Now, now let, me tell you, now, let me tell you about tenors. Of all the four melodies, the tenor is the funnest. You want your sharpest musician, if you can, on that. It, 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 usually, it usually covers the widest range. It usually moves the most. It's a fun line. But a tenor in a choir is usually sung by men who wear their belts too tight, and their voices go way, way high. And uh, so, we're, so, but, but what, what I want you to understand tonight, friend, what I want you to understand is that the tenor line is a distinct melody. And if I do my job right, the chorister, choreographer, choir dude, if I do my job right, even though I've got three separate melodies, if I do my job right, are you catching this? They're going to sound like one. Now I'm going to add, last but certainly not least, the foundation. This gentleman here is going to be my bass. In a choir, you want your basses to be stubborn, arrogant, belligerent, absolutely just in-your-face type personalities. Let me tell you why. These guys are the foundation. If, if, if this guy... He's really nervous. If my bass gets off, the rest of the group will be off. They're kind of the foundation. But what I need you to understand tonight, congregation, is that the bass is a distinct, separate melody. And if I do my job right, even though I've got a bass melody, a tenor melody, an alto melody, and a soprano melody, they're going to sound like one. Now, I've got two questions for you, congregation. Given what I have to work with, <laughs> am I going to have a challenge? Okay, all right, all right, fair enough. Fair enough. Settle down. Fair enough. Question number two. It's a long one, but hear me out. Question number two. If I told you that each one of these men have come to me personally and said, Brother Mike, this is in our bucket list. We really would like to do this before we go to heaven. We'd love to sing in a quartet. And we are willing to come to your house twice a week for an hour each time. And we'll take however long it takes for us to learn the parts. We really want to do this. We'll give it a year. Do you think the five of us might be able to pull it off? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Now, here's the point. Please don't miss this. In this illustration, I, not them, I am you. I am you. You're the chorister. 
You're the choreographer. You're the choir dude. And let me tell you what Peter's about to do to you. He's about to give you not four, but seven. Seven melodies that you are commanded, Christian, with eagerness. With eagerness. You're commanded to add to your faith. Seven of them. Let me tell you about these seven melodies. They're what we call in theology sequential. Which means if you don't have melody number one, which happens to be, by the way, your bass drum. If you don't have melody number one, melody number two is useless. If you don't have melodies one, two, three, and four, melody number five, which happens to be godliness, is fake. You're a hypocrite. If you don't have melodies one, and two, and three, and four, five, then melody is seven, which happens to be love, is fake and not the real thing. You don't please God. It's all built. It all begins, people. It all begins with melody number one. It all starts right here. This is your bass drum. And friends, so what is this? What, 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 is your, what, what are we talking about? Well, well let, let's look at it. Look at verse number five, if you would, please. And, and uh, before we do, though, let me tell these gentlemen, I'm done with you. You can sit down. Thank you for you. Thank you. Thank you. I may have just helped my love offering. But friends, let me ask you another question, okay? Do you have, do you have the ability do you have the giftedness to be the right kind of choir leader? Be careful how you answer that question. According to verses 1 through 4, you are gifted. You got it all. You have no excuse for not being a wonderfully sounding choir life. You've got all you need. You've got a new nature. You have got a divine godlike nature. You've got knowledge, you've got the Bible, you've got everything you need to be a phenomenal walking choir when it comes to your life. You're to add seven melodies. They are crucial. What I want to do tonight is I want to introduce you to melody number one. Tomorrow night we're going to look at melodies two and three. Tuesday night we're going to look at four and five. Wednesday night we're going to look at six and seven. And by Wednesday night you'll have all seven melodies memorized, I guarantee it, and you'll know what they mean. We're going to have a lot of fun. But what I want you to see tonight, friends, is your bass drum, the foundation of it all, where it all starts. Would you look at verse 5 again? Look at it. What does it say? And beside this, because you are gifted, giving all eagerness, diligence, add, which means to chorus together. That word add, if we get our word choir, chorus, choreography, it all comes from that word add. Add to your faith. And folks, what in the world is the first melody? Virtue. Virtue. What's the second melody? Knowledge. You know what that is? Knowledge is your Bible reading, what you know about the Bible, doctrine. That's really important, but I'm going to make a statement, people, right now, I'm going to make a statement that's going to sound heretical, but it's biblical. If you don't have virtue, the Bible is useless in your life. You add knowledge, you add the Bible to virtue. Virtue is so incredibly important. It is the foundation of your Christianity. It's the bass drum. And you and you alone, young people and adults, are the ones who play your virtue. What is it? It's the most important ingredient to your faith. What is it? Let me help you. The word virtue here describes a phenomenon that, I, that happened to me. Let me tell you what happened. Many years ago, many years ago, I was out jogging. And my son, who was just a little guy at that point, used to love to come with me when I was home. And he would be on his bicycle with a little helmet on. And I'd go for a five-mile run, and he'd be right by my side. He loved it because if ever he came with me on a run, I would give him another installment of a story I was making up on the spot about a little Indian by the name of Wanatutu. 
and he got into so many adventures. And, and, and you know, my son's, what, six, seven years old? He just adored it. Daddy, tell me, tell me. Dad, tell me more of the story. And so one day he's out there. With, we were living in Connecticut, and I'm jogging along. He's right here by my side, and, and we got towards the end of the run. At the end of the run, it kind of went down a hill and around a corner, and he decided on that particular day, a nice, warm spring day, he was going to be Daddy down the hill, and he took off. What I had forgotten, congregation, is that there in Connecticut about a week before we'd had snow. They had laid down that salt and sand, you know, and, and it, all, it had all melted, but that residual sand was still on the sidewalks. He's on a two-wheel vehicle. If you've ever done a motorcycle exam or have a motorcycle license, you know that on that test they ask you, what are the slickest surfaces for a motorcyclist? And the answer is gravel, sand, dirt. Number two, railroad tracks. I forgot to warn him. And he took off down that hill at full speed, went around the corner. And as he went around that corner at full speed, that bicycle slipped out from underneath him. And he went down hard on an asphalt sidewalk. I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. I got up there as fast as I could. And when I got there... My son was on the ground. He was bawling. He hurt so badly. The bicycle's on top of him. The wheels are still spinning. I got that dumb bicycle off of him, and I looked up his little body to make sure that anything was broken. He was wearing a pair of shorts and a T-shirt, and, and I saw road rash up and down his knee and road rash up and down his elbow, and, and on his back the T-shirt was kind of ripped up, and, and he, he had a bad crash. And he, people, as you can understand, he was bawling. And I gently helped him up to his feet, and I got down on one knee so that we were kind of eye to eye, ear to ear, head to head, and I just held him tight. I knew he hurt. I'd have done anything. This is a stupid thing to say, but you, you parents know what I mean. I'd have done anything to take that pain off of him and put it on me. But I couldn't, so I just held him tight. I just wanted him to know that Daddy was there. And I held him tight, and he cried, and he cried, and finally, after about two minutes, I whispered in his ear. I said, Andrew, honey... Don't tell your mother. No. (laughs) I said, Andrew, honey, and I know that some of you women are going to roll your eyes, but I said to him, Andrew, honey, try to be a little man. Now, people, he knew exactly what I meant. I was telling him, what was I telling him? I was saying this, son, this stinks. Son, this hurts. But try to be tough. Try to be strong, people. It worked. He started to suck up that little frame, started to regain his composure. I was telling my son to be tough. That is exactly, Christians, what virtue means. It's like Peter's pointing his finger at you saying, Hey, American Christian, I know what's available on your media. I know what kinds of people you have to work with. I know what desperate situation America's becoming. I know what kind of cruds you have to work with. I know what kind of neighborhood and what kind of schools you have. I know what's going on, but you be tough. You be strong. You make up your mind. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's you making up your mind. Christians, hear me so carefully. This is virtue. You make up your mind. We've got a fancy word in America for that. We call it character. I went to a college. Where uh, from the chapel platform, they used to tell us all the time, we hear great preaching, and I would hear over and over again, a test of your character is what it takes to stop you. You can borrow brains, but you can't borrow character. I remember as a freshman thinking, man, that's good preaching. And I got in my King James Bible, and I went to the concordance to look up character. It's not even in your Bible. 
I thought, well, where in the world are they getting this? I found it. It's virtue. It's you, sir. It's you, ma'am. It's you, young people, making up your own mind. I'm going to do right. Let me really zing your Indiana socks. One of the greatest examples, people, we have of virtue was given to us young people by a junior hire. He was probably 13, 14 years old, theologians say. When he went to live in a palace, his parents had been killed. He had no parents. He was living in opulence. But right there in the middle of all that opulence, he made up his mind. He said, I am going to do right. He purposed in his heart. What was his name? Daniel. Daniel, a junior hire, who made up his mind. I'm going to do right. I don't care what anybody else is doing. I'm going to do right. I am going to make up my mind. I'm going to be strong and obey the word of God. That's virtue. And folks, until you come to that point in your life, the Bible is absolutely useless in your life. You make up your mind. I'm going to do right. And then and only then are you ready to go to the manual and find out what is right. The biggest battle your pastor has with this church is you people just making up your mind, I'm going to do right. I'm going to do right. Folks, what a challenge. It's your bass drum. I went to a, I went to a Christian school. Well, no, I didn't. Let me start over. I went to a ministry that had a Christian school in Chicago. And uh, this Christian school was a rather large, had about 700 students. And I wasn't really involved with the Christian school all that much. I was on pastoral staff. But I, when I got there, I, I started hearing about Bible quizzing. Bible quizzing. I thought, what in the world is this Bible quizzing stuff? I didn't know what they were talking about. And I learned that if, if you were on the pastor's good side, he may tap you to be the coach of the Bible quiz team because they were his pride and joy in that Christian school. They were good. I thought, what in the world is this Bible quizzing? Well, I heard that we were going to be having a, a meet with a crosstown rival, and, and so they showed up at our campus that day, and they had a soccer game and girls' volleyball games, and then the, then the icing on the cake was they all got into the old auditorium, a room much larger than the one you're sitting in, and they had a Bible quiz meet against these two schools. Well, let me, I, I, I decided I'm going, to, I'm going to show up. I want to see what this Bible quizzing stuff's all about. So I showed up, and I sat in the back. The, the auditorium was full. And here's what I saw. There were four chairs with electric pads on this side, and there were four chairs with electric pads on this side. The home team was on this side. The visiting team was on this side. And they had electric pads on the chair, and there were light bulbs behind each chair. And the moderator, the referee, was here behind a podium, way out here with a microphone, and he would ask a question, and whoever stood up first, they were juniors and seniors in high school, whoever stood up first because of the electric pad, the light bulb behind their seat went bloop, which told the moderator that Sally stood up first, and therefore Sally has the opportunity of answering the Bible question and getting 100 points for her team, or if she answers it incorrectly, losing 100 points for her team. I thought, this is really cool. And I sat there and I was able to immediately deduct that evidently that year, the Bible quizzing subject was the book of Colossians. I love Colossians. Man, this is good. Well, I sat there in that back pew with my mouth agape. As I listened to these juniors and seniors in high school answering questions about the Bible, I didn't know the answer. There I sat, an ordained minister with a master's degree in Bible. Wow! 
They knew the Bible so incredibly well. I was nothing but impressed. However, I was at that ministry long enough to see some of those same juniors and seniors graduate from high school and go out and live like losers. What happened? They knew the Bible better than I did. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. They had a lot of knowledge. They had no virtue. Folks, the most important ingredient in your life is you making up your mind, I'm going to do right. And then you stick to it. That's virtue. And it's the most important ingredient to your faith. And you are the choir leader. What's your virtue like? What do you like on the inside? What do you like, young people, and nobody's around and you've got the remote control to the TV? What do you like, sir, and the wife has gone to bed and you're on the internet? What do you like, couples, and nobody's around and you're watching TV together at night? What's happening? That is a test of your virtue. What are you like? And folks, I stress with you that it is the most important ingredient to your faith. You making up your mind. It's the biggest problem in the American church. Us just making up our mind. We're going to do right. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let me just visit with you. Tomorrow night, we're going to add some more melodies to this. But I just want to stress tonight that the most important melody in your life, lady, sir, young people, is you just making up your mind. Do you remember what the Bible says about that? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind, your heart, is the most precious possession you've got. Are you controlling it? Are you taking control? It's your character. And may I challenge you tonight to get that right. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a passage. It's so potent. Lord, here a man is from the bottom of his heart. He's moved. And he so desperately wants the church to understand that long after he's gone, keep 